Hey, hey, welcome Disability Law Show. Back for another week. John Scholes here and Tamara Gopian, courtesy Samfiru Tamark and LLP. Just happen to be the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Always encouraging you to reach out and have that chat with Tamara if it's more of a uh, private, lengthy conversation you'd like to have. Uh, still no obligation. Just pick up a phone and call, ask some questions and start to get uh, educated, right? one 821 5900 Anytime we're not listening to the show, again, that number one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address, which we're going to break into here in just a, a few minutes. But tomorrow, as you know, every week on the show to kick off the hour, we get into a, you know, a case of the day or a week that was some, a matter that you've been dealing with on your side, my friend. What, uh, what do you got this week? Well, this week is more of a general theme, John, and the theme cool. is because I look outside and I think it's dreary and it's the you know middle of winter and you know February blahs is a thing, uh, and I thought to myself, you know, I think it's important to highlight uh, mental health claims, and I know we talk about them throughout our shows, but I cannot emphasize these enough because. Generally speaking, they are absolutely legitimate disability claims, and yet we get a lot of resistance from the disability insurers on compensating for claims like this. And one of the main ways they make this resistance, disability insurers, that is, is they tend to rely on a clause or a condition in these disability policies that say, you know, you have to meet the test of total disability. And you have to be getting appropriate treatment for that disability mm. in order in order for you to be compensated and receive LTD benefits. And the appropriate treatment clause varies from policy to policy. It's important to understand what it says specifically in your policy, but it generally doesn't say you must see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It just says you have to be under appropriate care with the appropriate medical practitioner or treatment provider, okay? So it's not very specific. However, disability insurers, these adjusters at the front lines, <clears throat> notoriously will want to get focused on whether or not you're seeing a psychiatrist, not even a counselor, not your family doctor, but they're very focused on if you're seeing a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist has made the diagnosis, then it must mean that there's more legitimacy to the mental health claim. Right. John, nothing could be farther from the truth, medically or factually, by the way. People can have absolutely symptoms around mental health conditions that can relapse, they can remit, so they get worse over time, better over time, then they get bad again. Um, you know, sometimes it can be so prevalent that it, you know, forces people to actually be bedridden. Other times it it prevents people from being comfortable in you know, social environments. There's so many different conditions. And because there are so many different conditions, it doesn't fit within the disability insurer's tendency to, to box check, to put things right. into mm -hmm. these, you know, automatic routine things to say, okay, you know, you've got depression. So it must mean that if you take these two medications and see a psychiatrist four times, you'll be back at work. It's not linear like that. And this is why I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding from disability insurers on how to adjudicate these kinds of claims and frankly you know how to bring them to an end that makes sense right so it it's not because it's not a one size fits all they often get very frustrated around okay well what are the treatment efforts um you know how long is this going to go because you know the ultimate goal for these adjusters is to close out these files yep. and mm -hmm. it, it so Look, the advice that I often give people who are come to us, talk to us 
about their mental health conditions and say, look, I'm getting the trouble from this adjuster or, you know, my claim was never approved. I don't understand why. I, I really think that the details around what's being communicated to the adjuster or the insurance company are really important for a mental health claim, more so than most other types of claims because of two main things. Number one, it's subjective. In other words, you don't see it on a scan. You can't send someone to an x-ray and have that x-ray conclude that they've got anxiety or PTSD. And so when it's self-reported symptoms, having that documented, uh, both from yourself as claimant and the doctor or treatment providers or counselor or therapist or whoever it is that's supporting you in this, very, very important. So subjectivity is one issue. And the other one is really the realities around accessing treatment. So I think that insurance companies get really hot and bothered about having to pay benefits while someone is waiting to see a specialist. So for example, I know that in most of the provinces uh, across the country, unfortunately, there are very long wait lists for publicly funded mental health supports, right? We know this. This has been an issue for a long time, but even more so in our post-COVID world, not only because we've had a, an increasing rise of mental health conditions, but also because of the demands on our you know, medical systems. So because of that, you can see a scenario where someone perhaps goes to see their family doctor with initial uh, you know, mental health concerns, symptoms, and so on. The family doctor may say, okay, let's start you off on potentially this medication, or I'm going to refer you to a counselor. And then things don't get better two, three months down the road, come back to your family doctor and the family doctor says, well, maybe it's time to refer this person to a psychiatrist. Well, the psychiatrist wait time could be another further four, five, six, seven months. And in that time, coming right back to what I said from the start, the adjuster is going to say, well, you're not getting appropriate treatment. So you're not getting appropriate treatment because you're not seeing the psychiatrist, even though it's absolutely out of your control. And so I think in those circumstances, actually providing the insurance company with information around the other supports that you're getting, if you're going to group therapy, if you are seeing a counselor in a public setting, if you are seeing your family doctor, maybe there's someone else in your world who's providing support as well, and they can attest to providing the support while this individual is not able to work as a result of their mental health conditions. And I think having that profile, really, really important provide that to the insurance company, have them look at all of it. If at that point, they still want to bury their heads in the sand and want to rely on just the fact that you're not seeing the psychiatrist as a means of denying your disability claim, I personally feel that that's not a valid basis. If you're doing everything else that you can, and you've got a valid working diagnosis, and you're working towards getting better, because really, that's what the purpose is for these treatment provisions in these policies. But like I said, the adjusters are very focused on checking those boxes and trying to find means to close out these kinds of disability claims or not approve them at all when they are absolutely valid disabilities. Do you find the same with psychologists? I mean, they're not, they're not quote unquote, medical doctors. They're not doctors with that, you know, doctor degree, but they're still incredibly useful and well-trained and, and helpful. But do you, do you get pushback from psychologists being on that, uh, that list as well? I, th- I think so because of that MD issue, right? I think yeah. that the insurance companies and adjusters generally seem very focused on an MD actually making the diagnosis or providing right. that treatment. Whereas we know for, I mean, look, I, I'm not a doctor myself, of course, as you know, John, um, but 
because I deal with so many individuals with mental health conditions, I can see the benefits of a psychologist very different than a psychiatrist or a family doctor or even a social worker or counselor. All of those individuals and practitioners are absolutely important and have a role to play. So I think having the insurer's tendency to be somewhat dismissive of anyone who's not an MD I think is a problem for the disability insurer because that's not what most of the policies say. It doesn't that's actually right. say you must see a doctor. It says you must be getting the treatment that moves you forward towards focusing on recovery. And that in and of itself makes sense to me. And of course, most people that I speak with, John, want to be better. They don't want to be home and not being able to work. They want to be contributing to society and feeling better. But I think it gets discounted when you don't have that MD behind you. But I want individuals to hear from me that sometimes getting psychotherapy from a psychologist is easier to access from a time frame perspective than yep. waiting out right right now for the psychiatrist. And so as a as a mid position, as something that you can do to demonstrate symptoms that require treatment, I absolutely have no hesitation for individuals seeing a psychologist and having the psychologist prepare reports or some kind of information to put over to the disability insurer to support the disability claim. Again, guys, reaching out to Tamar and her team, never hesitate to do so to have a chat of this nature or anything that uh, you have in mind when it comes to your disability coverage or dealing with that insurance company. You've been asked to appeal more than once, right? Before you do that, again, reach out 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. That would be the email address and we're going to it right now. Peter's up first. His guys, my son was recently uh, denied LTD benefits because the insurance company said his back issues were work-related and pre-existing. He was working as a service mechanic at a body shop and has had a bad back from a prior injury. His doctor thinks he may never return to a physical job, so my son is thinking of getting retrained for a different line of work. Does the insurance company still owe him benefits? The decline did not make sense to me, so I thought I'd check with you, disability lawyer, first. Great question, Peter, and I'm, I really appreciate you reaching out on behalf of your son. We have a lot of family members who do that, and mm -hmm. I always really, really appreciate that support system that people have. And so, you know, I tend to agree with Peter. I, I'd like to see what this decline letter says, John, but assuming that it says what most of these say, which is you've got a pre-existing health issue, so we're denying your claim, it could be that there is wiggle room, and it could be that there is no wiggle room. And so let me unpack this a bit. This pre-existing condition clause is a clause that exists in every disability policy that I've seen. And it says that if your disability claim arises typically in that first year of you working and having coverage under your plan, your work plan, then and, it, and then they get to look at if you had any prior health issues that are related to the one that you're actually making a disability claim for. And if there is some connection there, then that connection allows the disability insurer to use this exclusion to say, you may have an otherwise valid disability claim, but we're going to rely on this exclusion to say, your health issues are pre-existing, they arose in that first year of coverage, and therefore we get to use this technical reason to deny your claim. Okay, Very harsh, very difficult to bear for most people, because I find sometimes the insurers get it totally wrong because it's really a medical analysis. It's not a technical one. It's a medical one. So what I mean there is that if Peter's son actually 
didn't have any treatment or it wasn't a significant issue with his back in that period of time that the insurance company is looking at, it's not appropriate for the insurance companies to say it's a pre-existing condition. The time frame of when treatment was provided for that prior health issue becomes really, really important on looking at whether or not the disability insurer has actually triggered this exclusion appropriately. But I'm going to add a couple more comments, John. So why don't we pick this up after our next break? Absolutely. Peter, stand by. We're going to finish off with your question and you can uh, chime in anytime as well. Again, that email address we use on air, help at disabilityrights.ca. You can use that anytime and the phone number to reach Tamara and her team as well. 1-855-821-5900. Stand by. More of the Disability Law Show is coming right up. Hang on. And we are back. Disability Law Show. want to remind you, you can reach out anytime when you're not listening to the show. We appreciate you stopping by, by the way. And, uh, yeah, regardless, one 821 5900 1-855-821-5900 to reach out to Tamara and her team. You can go to help at disabilityrights.ca for an email. And uh, there's another website you can use anonymously, securely, and it's open for you to use absolutely free, of course, mydisabilityquestions.com. You go there, ask your questions, type them into your smartphone, your desktop, laptop, whatever, and uh, they will be answered. Searchable too, so maybe your question, one similar, has been asked previously. It'll uh, save you a bit of typing time, but if not, leave it there and you'll get uh, a reply for sure. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Okay, let's get back to uh, to Peter's question. Tamar, yeah. uh, carry on, my friend. So look, Peter describes to us that his son was um, working for uh, a body shop. He had a bad bag from a prior work injury. And it sounds like the insurance company has denied uh, on the basis of it, of it being a pre-existing condition and work-related. So I talked a little bit about how the pre-existing condition clause would operate. I want to focus a little bit on the second part of what Peter raised, which is, if, you know, it's work related, you know, his doctor thinks, you know, he may never uh, go, you know, go back to a physical job. Does the insurance company owe him anything? And, you know, can, does, you know, he needs to be retrained. So in the context of that, I'll say a couple of things. Typically, if you have an injury that is work related, then there is an avenue for that in most of the provinces uh, that we work in. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of uh, work, you know, workers' compensation. Uh, WorkSafe is the one in our Alberta and in Ontario is uh, work, you know, WSIB workers' compensation, and both of those settings operate in a very similar way, which is that you would then make a report or some kind of a claim to WorkSafe or workers' comp, and assert that the condition that you're suffering from and what's preventing you from working was actually something that arose, an injury or an issue that arose as a result of your work setting. And they are their own thing. What, what do I mean by that? <laughs> There's no standing for most lawyers. We can't uh, do anything for workers' compensation. Typically, that's its own entity. They are self-governing. Um, you know, they deal with employers and employees separately. Uh, but there is a connection to LTD. And the connection is this. If you are entitled to LTD and your health issues are related to a work setting for which you are receiving workers' compensation benefits, then most disability policies will say if you get LTD, LTD gets a credit for whatever you're getting as by way of income right. from mm -hmm. these other work safe settings. So that's one thing to put on Peter's radar is that, you know, I'm interested to know uh, if his son is pursuing workers' compensation. It's not the type of work that we do, as I said, uh, but I think it's valid to pursue it because typically they won't necessarily have the same kind of issues like pre-existing condition clauses and other um, bells and whistles that disability insurers like to put into their own policies. So that was my one comment. And 
And the other part of it, of course, is this idea of retraining. And so, look, I mean, when the disability insurer first gets a claimant's application, the test right out of the gates is whether they are totally disabled from doing the the job they were doing at the time their disability prevented them from working. Mm -hmm. That is the own occupation test, right? We talk about that quite a bit. And so this idea of retraining, yes, it comes into the analysis later on once you receive benefits for a little while and the insurer has acknowledged that you're totally disabled from your own occupation. And then their test changes and they have to do a further analysis on whether or not there's any job you can do. So I think that's really where that retraining conversation comes in. But out of the gates, and it certainly sounds like that's where Peter's son's um, disability claim is at, is right at the preliminary phases. The idea of retraining, I don't think, is necessarily something that's got to be front and center. I think front and center is the fact that the doctor is saying that he cannot work as a result of his back issues. Full stop. If it's a physical job with a physical disability, that should equal disability benefits, Mm -hmm. um, subject, of course, to the pre-existing condition clause. And so... You know, I, you know, I've got people who who reach out to me, John, who say, "Look, you know, I, I'm at the two year mark, and I absolutely need to retrain, and I've never done a, a type of office job, let's say, or some other type of line of work. You know, surely the insurance company is going to have to pay me to retrain and rehabilitate and all these other things." And unfortunately, I have to say to most claimants that I speak with that that obligation doesn't necessarily exist in most disability policies. A few will have something that says in there, look, you know, um, we'll give you 3000 bucks towards an education program, or perhaps they will offer job assistance um, training, you know, a couple thousand bucks towards, you know, resume building or something like yeah. that. But right. in terms of actually getting you into a college program, for example, and getting you retrained into a ter- totally different line of work, the insurer is really not, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily land at the insured disability insurer's feet, which is why the medical information then becomes so important, right? So getting some clear opinions from your doctors about your capacity to work, your ability to work, your limitations, um, all of that, super, super important. So I just wanted to close that off, you know, as we're sort of addressing uh, Peter's son's situation that, you know, it's not always so linear. Just because the insurer is saying one thing doesn't mean that's just the only thing that is required to look at in most people's disability claims, which is why it is so important for individuals to understand what their rights are. And, you know, I'm happy to speak with anyone at any stage of their disability claim, even if it's out of the gates and they're not sure where to go, what to pursue. Um, you know, these consults are free, John, our radio show, our TV show, all of the resources that we have really, really important so that you know that you're not leaving any stone unturned when you're Mm -hmm. in a situation where your health is preventing you from working. Again, disabilityrights.ca would be the website you want to go. And uh, you can find uh, either on different, you know, no matter where you are, pretty much across the country, TV and radio have uh, got you covered in that regard as far as this uh, this show is concerned. And the phone number, of course, to reach out to Tamara and team, 1-855-821-5900. Now, you know, if, if LTD benefits are still being paid, so you're still getting them, uh, as far as advice to dealing with that insurance adjuster, you got any? Is it the same advice for the employer? What do you think? Yeah. So it's a little bit nuanced, actually, John. I mean, dealing with an insurance adjuster in and of itself can be st- stressful. Uh, I know that for a fact. And, you know, I think it's nuanced because the the focus for the insurance adjuster is is really different than what you would expect your employer would need. So the employer, while you're on a leave, 
really is entitled to know, look, you know, you're on a leave. They, they're entitled to know that there's medical support for that leave, uh, but they're not really expected to know the details around why you're off. Okay. So I always say prognosis versus diagnosis. So the employer needs to know, look, you know, when can you reasonably be expected to return back to work? And at that point in time, if you require, you know, accommodations or there are ongoing restrictions that need to be put in place to allow someone to get back to work, then most certainly more detailed medical information um, is required. And there's a process in terms of return to work planning with your employer. But if you're off and you're still being paid for LTD benefits, you know, my general advice is, you know, you don't really need to do much with your employer. If the employer reaches out for an update, you should provide it. Don't ignore it because you don't want them thinking that you've abandoned your job. But beyond that, I think the contact with your employer is probably a little less when you're getting LTD, partly because most decent adjusters and insurance companies are updating your employer. Not always, folks. They're not always doing it. Don't rely on them doing it. But generally speaking, the ones who are doing it correctly are updating periodically your employer about what's happening with your disability claim. But when it comes to dealing with your insurance adjuster, well, that's a whole other kettle of fish because... You know, I really do advocate that people should be open and honest with their insurance company. You know, you want them to know all of the nitty gritty details around all of your limitations, all of your efforts to get better, you know, what you're continuing to struggle with, all of that super relevant, super important. And I think most people will try and develop some kind of a relationship with the insurance adjuster, but I always caution people to put it into context the adjuster is always looking for opportunities or information that would suggest that you're better than you are, okay? Because if you're better than you are, then guess what? They get to use that as a reason to deny your claim or bring your claim to an end. And so, yes, a reasonable degree of caution is important, even though you want to sort of be able to say to the adjuster, look, I'm still struggling with this, I'm still struggling with getting out of bed, or I'm still dealing with this health issue, I'm still waiting to see this specialist, whatever the case might be. I also think that there could be some value in documenting your relationship and contacts with your insurance adjuster. Now, as a lawyer, I'm mad about, like mad as in crazy mad, John, for a lack of better term, in terms of that documentation. I take notes of everything. You know, I'm very, very diligent about that kind of thing, partly due to my training and partly due to the reality that I think I service my clients better if I'm on top of my game in terms of documenting what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I think with individuals who have disabilities and they're dealing with a disability insurer and an adjuster for the first time, even suggesting to them to to keep a journal of their contact with the insurance company could sometimes feel very overwhelming. So I certainly don't want people to feel like it's a burden per se, but you know, there are critical moments in, in adjudication and those moments usually involve the insurance company making a decision around whether your benefits are going to be approved or continued. And in conversations like that, I find it can be super helpful for someone to just send themselves an email or draw down a couple of notes of the main things that you were asked and what you responded and how long the call took, who was it with, that kind of thing. Some insurance companies have started to document these calls a little better. I've even seen a transcription of some of them. So like word by word, what was said, what was asked and so on. One insurer has started to do that. Um, which it could be good, could be bad, but at least it's being documented in a in an even way. But more often than not, you have an adjuster who's just putting a little phone log in. Uh, he or she is just going to throw a couple of sentences in, 
after maybe a 30 minute conversation with most claimants. Can you imagine? And so mm-hmm. of course there's going to be a bunch of things that are missed or not documented from the insurer's end. And when it's critical information that's being imparted, or perhaps there's a tone to it, perhaps it was more combative, or you felt that the adjuster wasn't being even or fair uh, in the conversation, then I think it is important to have that documented on your end, because that's not going to come through in a transcription. It's not going to come through even in a phone log if they even write down what what the you know back and forth was, because it's it's human nature that you're going to be inherently biased on the way that you heard something, right? So as an adjuster, you're doing this job and you're going to write it down in the way you think. I communicated to the claimant that their disability benefits going to end, and yet. I talk to the client and they say, no, no, they didn't tell me they're ending. They just told me they're going to keep looking at it and seeing whether I'm going to be approved next month, right? Very different communications around what is actually happening with a disability claim. So, you know, documenting fair and open honesty with some degree of cynicism is generally the advice I give most people on dealing with the adjuster. You can get a lot of static if you ask for a different adjuster, if you don't like the one you have, if they're being maybe not a bully, but they're not just being very useful to you? We'll put it that way. You know, I think there's a tipping point, John, and it's and it's a case by case. So generalities are hard in, in giving people advice on a situation like that. I, I'm going to give an example. I think mm-hmm. that if the adjuster is harming your health, okay, so in a sense of perhaps giving rise to a panic attack or perhaps giving rise to some kind of physical reaction to having a discussion with the adjuster, if you think it's taking you, stepping you back on the progress that you're making, then I think it absolutely is legitimate to say this is not working. Perhaps we do our communications via email or, you know, you contact a manager, someone above the adjuster and say, I'm having a really hard time. I really need someone else to come in and adjudicate my claim. The thing is, though, you really do need medical support to back you up in those instances. And again, it can be difficult to have, you know, your doctor, you know, at the end of a line within minutes to say, hey, I just had another terrible reaction to my discussion with my adjuster. Can you write me a medical note so that I can support having another adjuster assigned? All very reasonable, all very fair, but really tough to do if it's just like, oh, well, this person doesn't like me. This person doesn't believe in me. And so it must mean that I am entitled to get a new adjuster. Sometimes you're going to get some resistance from the disability insurer if it's not backed up with more legitimate, um, quote unquote, legitimate medical support in terms of getting someone new assigned. Good stuff. With that, we'll take a short break. Back into another email. Shelly, stand by. You're coming up here. In the meantime, how do you reach out uh, at all times? one 821 5900 would be that number. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. Short break right here and then coming right back on the Disability Law Show. Welcome back. Thanks for hanging on. Disability Law Show this hour. Good to have you here. John Scholes along with Tamar Ogopian. And Tamar comes from San Firu Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Always encouraging you to reach out because it can be uh, confusing waters dealing with uninsured adjusters, so on and so forth. If you're uh, already hurting because of a disability claim and you're off work, so you're already mentally maybe a little weak and not up to the fight, there is somebody in your corner for sure. Get Tamar and her team on at one 821 5900 The chat is not going to cost you anything just to get educated. Email is help at disabilityrights.ca uh, as well. As mentioned, moving on to Shelly, she says, guys, I helped my sister submit an LTD application. It took time to get her doctor to send the medical records the insurance company wanted. The insurance company went ahead and denied my sister's claim anyway, even after we told the adjuster that the doctor was sending more records. 
The denial letter even said that there was insufficient medical information to support my sister's claim. This doesn't seem right. My sister just got another letter saying they are reviewing her appeal information. Does this mean the insurance company may approve my sister's disability claim after all? Shelly, always positive. How about that? Yeah. So, Shelly, what can I say? I mean, this is so frustrating, right, John? The insurance company knows there's more medical information coming, but they decide they're going to decline anyway on the basis that there's not enough medical information. I mean, it's just bonkers to me, just unbelievable. And I get really frustrated because most claimants can't control how quickly their doctor turns these kinds of things around. Doctors are not there to write reports. I don't know what insurance companies think that they are there to do, but I can assure you that they are actually treating people. So the idea of allowing the doctor enough time to provide the information that's necessary for the disability claim makes sense to me. I don't like the idea that there's a premature denial here because it then does this. It forces Shelly and her sister to a position where they now have to appeal to even get a fair shake out of the gates, right? So think of what's happening. They've submitted the information. They've told the insurance company, more medical's coming. Jester says, I don't care. I'm denying you anyway. I don't have enough medical. Then the letter will say, and if you disagree with my decision, you now have the option of appealing our decision, right? Yeah. So what's the appeal process? Yeah, the appeal process. Here we are talking about this again. It is not something that you will see in your disability policy 99% of the time. It's actually not even something that's really very clearly documented in most of the information that's available to the insurance adjuster. We've asked for it, John. We asked, are there training manuals? Is there a guideline? Are there policies? No, no. This is, we just give people three opportunities to appeal our decision. Oh, okay, insurance company. Who's looking at that appeal? Oh, well, at the first level, it's the same adjuster. Okay. Yeah. So now the same person who's already said no to Shelly and her sister is going to potentially look at this for their medical information, maybe, maybe not, and issue yet another, most likely, denial of the claim. And so the, the trouble I have here is that there are no checks and balances. This is something that internally is conceived of by the insurer to allow them to do this because in the appeal setting, the onus shifts completely back to the claimant to prove that they've got a valid disability claim that's payable, as opposed to what happens out of the gates, which is the onus is on the adjuster to give this individual a fair shake, look at all of the information fairly, perhaps get a doctor to weigh in on it, maybe, maybe not, and actually look to see whether or not this person meets the test for benefits. So I, I'm, I'm getting frustrated only because I see this time and again, and you can see instances where people just simply give up. Right? They're thinking, well, okay, I've got to deal with my health issues. I can't deal with this nonsense with the disability insurer. I'm not even going to pursue it. And that is what the insurance company is banking on, John. Right. They want mm -hmm. people to walk away. And they make it difficult by, by providing them with these kinds of responses, these kinds of denials, and the rigors of having to appeal again and again and again. It, you know, In a situation like this, you know what the adjuster could have done, John? Well, first of all, they could have waited. So maybe diarized for two, three weeks, waited before initiating that decline decision to see when the doctor will provide that information and actually look at it and consider it. That was option one. Option two would have been to have the ad adjuster actually write to your own doctors for that information as well. So nothing prevents from the adjuster to say, okay, well, I don't have enough information. 
I'm going to pend the claim. I'm going to put it on hold until I get more information. They've got your authorization to get that information directly from the doctor, and they can very easily write out to the doctor and say, okay, look, I'm looking for further information. I understand it might be coming, but we're, this is really what we're looking for. Here are three things that I need. Please provide it to me. And then at least there's an opportunity to look at it in its totality. The insurance companies know, I mean, I, I know, I don't know if their adjusters know, but I know, and their lawyers know that the insurance company can't just cherry pick. They have to look at all of the evidence in its totality to make a decision on whether or not somebody is totally disabled. And I think when they pull the plug early and when they decline prematurely, what they're banking on is people will not continue to pursue their rights. So here's the takeaway, Shelley. If your sister's claim gets denied again, I think there could be a very good basis to challenge the disability insurer. Not only because there's likely sufficient medical information supporting your sister's claim, but also because of the insurance company's poor conduct in a situation like this. Now, does it rise to the level of bad faith? Eh, I think there's some issues here for sure in terms of the adjudication. I'd want to see the claims file, John, but I can tell you that the, the way the courts have been looking at these disability insurers is that it's not favorable. They don't like disability insurers denying otherwise valid disability claims, and they have slapped the wrists of many disability insurers over the last decade in the times where the insurer has just doggedly refused to pay benefits. And that exposure of damages and that risk of reputational um, issues coming out is really a great leverage point for us against the insurers when we get involved, when we get retained, and we move forward with these claims. So as I said before, if there's sufficient basis for a disability claim, if your doctors are supporting that you can't work, to me, the disability benefits should absolutely be paid. And if you're getting any trouble whatsoever, please don't hesitate to give us a call. We'll talk it through with you. We'll give you your options. And if we think that there's a basis for a legal claim, we're absolutely going to give you that advice so that we can move forward. And you're not doing this game that the insurance company is asking you to do, which is to appeal and appeal again, only to be met with resistance time and time again. One more quick break and we'll get to lots more. We'll try to get to another email or two in the remaining minutes. In the meantime, one 821 5900 That's the number to reach out to Tamar and her team, help at disabilityrights.ca. And uh, for short, concise, easy to digest memos, everything about the topics of LTD under that umbrella. In non-legal speak, there's a website that you can use called ltdfaq.ca, ltdfaq.ca. You can check that out as well. It's free, of course. We'll take a short break and get back with the final few minutes of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. You have the opportunity, by the way, not just this hour, but uh, any other time to reach out to Tamar and her team. The phone number you can use, 1-855-821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. Quinn, coming up right now, email says, hi, I'm writing about my husband's situation. He's been on LTD from since 2019 and will be on it until he returned, uh, until he turns 65 this time next year. He originally refused to apply for CPPD, but has since applied uh, for it in 2022. He was denied CPP, uh, not fully being disabled. He then appealed as per his caseworker's instructions. All the paperwork was sent to the insurance company, and the insurance company then forwarded it to CPP disability. His caseworker told him in 2022 
that we, he would have to pay back over $24,000 because he did not apply for CPP at the beginning. He apparently now wills RBC the difference of over uh, difference of over payments between the insurance company and CPP. It's very confusing, but if he's denied CPP, why should he have to pay back the money? Is he entitled to any further LTD benefits? We'd appreciate any further information you can provide. Wow. Stressful yeah. as hell. No kidding. Like, so, so let me unpack this for our listeners. What's happened here is the insurance company has said, well, you didn't apply for CPP disability. Mm-hmm. We get a credit for it. We're, we're frustrated that you didn't apply. You were denied. Now we, you owe us money. Pay us back. <laughs> and by the way, your benefits are ending in a year. So you know what? We want our money back, right? Like this is mm-hmm. this is what's happening here, John. If they can save any cent, they will save they will. every yeah. cent that they can. It's just absurd. So so let's look at this critically. Most disability policies will say that if you are entitled to certain sur- sources of income, that the insurance company gets to take a credit for that. They actually say it right into the policy. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of wiggle room around whether or not you getting like a benefit like disability, uh, CPP disability, which is an income benefit from the government. If you get it, 99% of the time, the insurance company gets to get a credit or a deduction for that amount. Okay. What's less clear in Quinn's husband's situation, and I want to see the policy, is if there's a requirement to apply. Does it say you must apply? Because if it says you must apply, then yeah. He should have applied. Yeah, Yeah, you've got to apply. But most policies don't say you must apply. Most policies, John, say if you are eligible, we get to take the deduction. If you don't apply, we will estimate the amount and we will deduct the estimate from what we think you should have gotten because we think that you are eligible, something in, in that kind of language. Okay. So, If that's the case, if it's an eligibility issue and an estimate, then again, there could be a problem here in terms of what is payable for CPP disability. But the devil really is in the details, not only on the policy language, but also Quinn's husband's entitlement to the CPP disability benefit. So what was he supposed to get? What did he actually get? What period of time? All of that becomes very relevant as to the insurer's position that they are now entitled to this $24,000 of repayment. It cannot be a penalty. It doesn't work that way. And what I'm frustrated about here is that it sounds like they're making it a penalty, almost to the point of perhaps not having to pay Quinn's husband at all. That's why I'm saying. So think of a scenario where if Quinn's husband's entitled to the uh, maximum CPP disability benefit, which in 2022 was about $1,450 a month. Mm -hmm. If his disability benefit is around that same level, then the insurance company is going to turn around and say, well, we actually don't owe you anything until we get this $24,000 paid back. Okay. That's one scenario. More likely though, is that, you know, the benefit level is probably around 3000 bucks. So they still owe him half for the balance of the time before he turns 65 years old. Either way, None of this is sitting well with me whatsoever. I think there might be a call with Quinn after the show um, so that I can take a look at this um, because this kind of behavior from disability insurers can be problematic for insurers when they are going after funds or taking a position that is outside of the bounds of their policy. You know, John, they like to 
to throw that policy around in our faces all the time, right? Oh, well, the policy says this, and this is what we're required to do, and we're not entitled to pay a cent unless our policy tells us to do that. Okay, that's fair. But then you're also bound by the policy insurance company, and if the policy doesn't allow you to take a credit when that credit isn't warranted or entitled to, then you guys can go fly a kite as well as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) Um, right? And and so you, you cannot be unfair as an adjuster or an insurance company in the way that you use the policy. And I know they like to use it as a sword, not a shield. I say this quite a bit. Um, So they like to use it as a means to save dollars on their end, protect themselves, cut off claims prematurely, all of the things that we talk about day in and day out. But if they're not doing it with the alignment of what their policy actually says and a fair reading of their policy, then I think that opens them up absolutely to a potential damages claim. You know, and the threshold isn't that high, John. Like, you know, courts have said, look, if you're exacerbating a mental health condition, for example, or if you're creating a, a certain level of anxiety for a claimant that is beyond what it should, what is the norm, uh, then absolutely there are damages that flow from that. Yeah. And there just needs to be demonstration of by the claimant that they were in fact you know, adversely impacted by the insurer's conduct. And I would bet in Quinn's uh, situation, his husband's situation, that none of this is great, especially when they were expecting that these benefits would continue till age 65 and actually proceeded to to apply for CPP disability as well. Very clearly, his husband has a severe and prolonged disability and should be receiving all of the benefits from every source that he can possibly access. Quinn, good email. We hope that uh, lengthy answer answers some of your questions for sure. But again, the advice is always to reach out now that we're uh, pretty much done with the show. Thank you so much for contributing, though. And I know uh, tomorrow we'll continue and answer all your questions as it uh, applies to CPP disability and dealing with your insurer as well. You just got to uh, reach out by phone now. You already sent the email, of course. But for everybody else, that email address, uh, address is help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number anytime, one 855 821 And you can also go to my disability disabilityquestions.com. That website is uh, built for you to ask questions on your uh, your smartphone, your tablet, computer, whatever you got. It's free, it's anonymous, and it's got a, uh, an algorithm constructed to uh, be searchable. So maybe your question or one very similar to it has been asked previously. It'll save you a bit of time. If not, leave it there and it'll get answered again. Mydisabilityquestions.com. Just about done. Thank you so much for tuning in and contributing to the show this week. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.